Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am one of the hosts of the channel, Shatran Jemal. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Durba Ghosh about her book, Gentlemanly Terrorists, Political Violence and the Colonial State in India, 1919 to 1947, which was published by Cambridge University Press in 2017. Professor Ghosh is a professor of history at Cornell University. So welcome to the podcast today, Durba. Our first question is always biographical, so I'd like to ask you about your background. Where did you grow up, and how did you become a historian of colonial India and South Asia? Well, thank you so much for that question. Thank you for having me this morning. Um, So I grew up in Flushing, Queens, which is in the city of New York, and I think many New Yorkers know um, Flushing is the final exit of the number seven train. Probably many people know uh, for many years it was a kind of hub for an Asian immigrant community, which is um, which is where I grew up. Uh, so I think it's fair to say I didn't imagine I was going to be a historian. In fact, it's fair to say that among the community I grew up in, the sensible career choices including included doctor or engineer. Um, my family is from Bengal, and my parents uh, were from East Bengal, and I think that. As a child, I heard many stories about partition. They were among the the generation that moved from east to west. Um, And I would say in some sense, I wandered into that career that I have. Uh, I had a very good education in social studies in high school and then went on to major in history in college, but not a lot of training in South Asian history. Uh, And I think when I went to graduate school in part, it was to seek, um, you know, some more responses or answers about the history of South Asia. I think the other thing I'd say was I had imagined as a career, a career working in book publishing, which is what, what I had done before I went to graduate school. And so when I went to graduate school, I imagined it as a detour to returning to a publishing job. Um, 
I didn't imagine myself as an author or writer. So I would say I had a circuitous route. I will say that when I went to graduate school, probably unlike a lot of graduate students now, I had very little formal training in South Asian history, but I did have a very deep um, knowledge of British colonialism in part because I had studied the history of South Africa. And so I think those features might explain how I approach the history of South Asia, which is uh, sometimes still is a novice, but, um, but very deeply invested in the ways that that colonialism structured the history of South Asia. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so I, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely see in your um, in your book to um, sort of a deep knowledge of British colonialism and British imperialism. Um, so, so, so thank you for sharing um, about your journey to becoming a historian. Um, so I'd now like to uh, turn to talking about your book. Um, Gentlemanly Terrorists is a deeply engaging and fascinating history of the role and impact of revolutionary violence in India's anti-colonial movement. So, so how did you come to write this book and what do you see as its core arguments and contributions? You know, I feel like the theme of my responses, Shatran Jay, is going to be, this isn't what I planned. Um, so I'll start by saying, probably some of you know, I wrote a first book about the 18th century British Empire. And um, I wrote an article on reading the archives for a wonderful edited volume by Antoinette Burton called Archive Stories, um, which says a bit more. But I came to this topic in the summer of 2000, so many years ago, when I found out I was pregnant with my son, and he's about to turn 21, so you can imagine how long ago this was. Um, I had funding to be in London for six weeks, and I was planning to work on some 18th century materials, but I found that I was nauseated when I got to work every day when the materials came, and so um, I was literally allergic to the 18th century volumes. Uh, partially because I was there for a month, <clears throat> I returned to these. I returned to some of these 20th century materials, in part um, because I had heard these stories from my great uncle in India, who had been detained in Hidgley. And these were stories I had heard growing up. He had received a freedom fighter's pension, um, and on my visits to India as a child, and then in graduate school, he had told me that Gandhi and Tagore had visited him in the detention camp. Um, like a lot of stories, I found the idea a little far-fetched, so I started digging around in the India office materials, and that was the summer of 2000. Um, and at that point, I came upon the documents that described the riot in Hidgley detention camp in September 1931. Um, it's, a, it's a long story, but I basically began to follow what happened after this riot in which about a dozen detainees were injured, including my great uncle, and two detainees were killed. Uh, and when I, when I began, I assumed that many historians would have written about this moment in part because it really dramatized the violence of the colonial state. Um, I also started looking at the range of legislation that put my great uncle in detention. He was in detention for uh, eight years. Uh, and of course I then learned that there was a network of detention camps and that there were several thousand others who had been, um, incarcerated in that way, um, around then. And, and of course, as I write in the, in the book, the events of September 11th transformed the questions I was asking. And in particular, some of you will remember that in the aftermath of September 11th, the United States government enacted a range of legislation um, 
the USA, USA Patriot Act is probably the most condensed version of that. And they use the logic of a temporary suspension of rules of law um, to explain how they were going to combat terrorism. And so in part because terrorism was the language that was used in these colonial documents, I felt like there was a history of revolutionary terrorism in India that uh, could explain the responses that were, the legal responses that were emerging in the aftermath of September 11th. Um, the book came out in 2017, so it was a long process of figuring out what the important questions were going to be. But I think for me, uh, it became clear that the hunch that I had had, which was that this extraordinary legislation was in fact not temporary, but permanent, uh, was something that really took a lot of working through because, I mean, I, I write about it in the book, there's a number of amendments and legislative assembly debates and so on and so forth, but it took a long time to work out um, how foundational that became to uh, how modern states deal with radicals and political dissidents. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, I, for, uh, I didn't know that you had like that personal connection uh, with the anti-colonial movement um, through your grandfather. So that, that's that's really fascinating um, to hear. And I can also uh, I, I, re I read too in your book about uh, how 9-11 um, sort of influenced the, 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 the sorts of questions that you asked um, in this book. Um, so I'd now like to ask you about the research process. Um, so what sources did you use to uh, research for this book? Uh, what archives did you visit? And what was it like to write this book? Oh, that's a great question. <laughs> I'll be honest and say that it was a lot easier to write this book than the first book. Um, it was a lot easier to write about rebels and revolutionaries and those the British called terrorists uh, than it was to write about the women I wrote about in my first book. Um, the idea that I was writing about freedom fighters made it much easier to gain access to particular archives. Although mm -hmm. I will say that uh, um, the, the one thing that I will say is of course, these were people who flouted um, state regulations. Right. Um, and so the state was very deeply invested in accounting for where they were and what they were doing. And so um, I found it fascinating, particularly now that the Indian government keeps very, it actually holds on to these documents. Um, it doesn't know what's in them, but a lot of these documents were also restricted. And so there were, it was a voluminous amount of material and um, it was also quite repetitive, but it, took a long time to sort through all of the material that I'd looked at. Um, that's the kind of more state-centered set of documents. And I looked at documents in Calcutta. I looked at documents at the National Archives of India and Delhi. And of course, I looked at documents in the, um, in the National Archives in Kew and also uh, in the British Library and the India Office Collection. So... Um, there was a lot, there were a lot of names. And initially I started a kind of database to keep track of the, the people that have been detained. And it turned out, of course, that the British kept track of them pretty well. So in some ways there was a huge amount of material. 
Um, I think what made it difficult was that the volume of material um, combined with the many shared recollections and memories I was able to draw from, and those appear in two of the chapters, the memoirs and autobiographies. I think what made it difficult was sorting through the difference between the story that the state wanted to tell, the story that the participants of these movements wanted to tell, and the history that I thought was worth telling. And so Mm -hmm. I think, um, as as you know, in the book, I draw from a number of, of uh, accounts that appeared right after 1947 in the 50s and 60s, when I think when many of the participants of these movements were alive, and they were very keen to document what they had experienced, which makes a lot of sense if you think that their history was underground, it was secret um, during the period of colonial rule. So I drew from those, but it, but um, I also, uh, I think, I think it was really challenging not to be sucked into the narrative that other voices wanted me to tell. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, I really, what I really appreciated um, about your book is how it's not just um, very, it's it sort of, it's, it's not just based in the colonial archive, but it's also sort of includes these uh, revolutionary autobiographies and memoirs. Um, so I, I, I found that uh, very interesting um, and, and sort of very useful um, um, as, as a historical book. Um, so the title and introduction of the book bring attention to the dual identities of the protagonists of your book. Um, so violent revolutionaries belonging to social groups considered, quote unquote, respectable by British colonial officials. Um, so could you tell us more about the background of these revolutionaries, as well as about the emergence of revolutionary nationalism in India more generally and Bengal in particular uh, in the early 20th century? Yeah, I mean, uh, again, uh, the the title sort of the title and introduction, um, you know, as you know, comes from Padraluk uh, Dakat, which is the term that the the British used to uh, identify these revolutionaries, and the term emerges really very early in the Swadeshi movement. Um, And I think in some ways it's meant to express a sense of surprise that British officials have that the groups that they think of as respectable, Bhadrlok, are also Dakat, right? So these are two categories that don't usually go together from from a kind of colonial perspective. Um, I think partially because of my own background, and my interest in thinking about respectability as uh, a framing device, uh, it, it's something I focus on in the first book too. I was keen to think about how caste and class and educational status frame the involvement of revolutionary terrorists. And one of the things that's very clear from the many reports about the movement is that, that it's most active in schools and universities. Um, and I found that very uh, interesting, I mean, interesting, inspiring, um, but also uh, paradoxical, right? That, that for the British, the idea of offering what they consider a liberal education is that, and it's a very Macaulayan vision, right? Is that you're training, um, you're training Indians to be uh, appropriate collaborators in managing this government. 
Whereas I think most of us think of education as opening up um, questions, allowing us to be critical and allowing us to reject things that are not persuasive or ideas that are not persuasive. So I think for me, the, the important thing was about these tensions that are identified as colonial, that the colonial officials identify, you know, educated, landed people embracing revolutionary and radical ideas. Um, and I, I, if, if I can say, I think one of the things I was intrigued by was, and I don't write about the first half of the movement in the 1910s, but in the 1910s, the movement is actually socially and religiously quite diverse. There are Muslims in the movement. By the 1920s and 30s, there are, there are none, right, in the, in the two groups that I write about in the book. And I think that that's a very important and interesting shift in the sense that I think that the revolutionary terrorists started to see themselves as respectable and started to see themselves as requiring particular kinds of um, privileges uh, when they were detained. So uh, I, it was late, I would say late in the research, meaning I probably have been researching the project for about a decade when I found um, some of the memoirs and autobiographies and, and actually a group of oral histories that were recorded in the Historical Society in Calcutta on these little audio cassettes where um, the kind of foot soldiers of the movement recorded their accounts where I could see that uh, joining one of these movements or joining a secret cell was a sign of your elite status, right? Which which is kind of counterintuitive, I guess, is a way is the way that I would say it. Um, I my impression is that the way that the movement was organized into these secret cells that people had to be able to trust the the small groups that they were organized with, and that a lot of that trust was based on knowing that X was the sister of somebody you had gone to school with or why was the older brother of um, your teacher or whatever. And so these social ties, which were often caste and status ties, were very important to holding the movement together. But I think it also generated a movement that um, couldn't expand beyond this caste group, if, that, if that's a way of saying it. Um, I, I think Bengalis, it won't surprise anybody, are enormously proud of this history of militant nationalism. Um, I think as a Bengali myself, <laughs> I think it's important to be open about some of the limits of the movement. And I think one of the really um, important limits was that it it became narrower in its, um, it, in, in those the people that were included in the movement. I hope that, I think that, I hope that answers the background of the revolutionaries question. Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, I think the Bengali Bhadralok um, ha- sort of have a very unique relationship uh, with British colonialism, because on the one hand, they were sort of part of the colonial administration or attending these schools and colleges um, that had been established by the British, as you mentioned. But at the same time, by the early 20th century, um, they they'd sort of, started becoming involved in um, anti-colonial revolutionary activities. Um, so yeah, that, that's really um, fascinating. Um, 
and, and and also as you mentioned, like the limits of the movement, like that's something that I I think we need as um, historians or um, as people interested in um, so- South Asian history. This is something um, to think about as well. Um, so um, I'd now like to move to talking um, about the chapters of the book. So in chapter one, you begin your narrative by focusing on the early post-World War I years, uh, when the British colonial government in India introduced a slew of law and laws and reforms. So could you tell us uh, a little bit about these laws and reforms and the ways in which these were a response to Indian anti-colonialism and revolutionary violence? Um, and also, how did Indian anti-colonial figures respond to the introduction of these laws? Yeah, you know, I feel like chapter one is the chapter um, that I think probably everybody writes in in their dissertations and books. It's the chapter where I'm trying to avoid writing about that first wave of revolutionary nationalism that happens before the First World War. Um, There's a massive amount of uh, historical work on it. And one of the one of the issues that I realized was that the book would be too unwieldy if I was going to include the wave that um, emerged in, in the kind of 1905 to 1915 period. But um, so I, I made a kind of conscious decision to start with uh, World War One, and, um, and, and actually the thing that I had not expected was um, there's a royal amnesty given in 1919, which I which I write about in the book, which very few people had uh, addressed in part because I don't think any of us think that proclamations by the monarch are going to be that um, important. What's very interesting in the text of that proclamation, which I read in the chapter, is that it condenses this uh, and very much a liberal in the in the liberal party, uh, it, it condenses this kind of liberal aspiration that the agreements and the laws and reforms that have that have been offered in the aftermath of World War One are going to be sufficient to tamp down any radical or revolutionary response to British colonialism, and so. I, I think what's interesting about um, the, the Montague Chelmsford reforms, but the Montague piece of it is that Montague develops this language of self-governance. And so in certain sectors of, of the British parliament and the British cabinet, there's a sense that um, there's a sense that these colonies are going to become self-governing uh, and that this the form of colonial occupation that's been in place is not sustainable for, for a number of reasons. Um, I think what was interesting to me about the proclamation in particular is it sets up this idea that you amnesty all of the people that have been convicted of, of treason and of sedition and of violence against the state, and that because they are educated, right, and because men, many of them at that point are educated in Britain, these are people who can still be brought into um, the kind of liberal colonial fold, people who can participate in some of the um, venues for self-governance, the legislative assemblies and so on and so forth. I think um, it's an incredibly optimistic uh, aspiration that 
depends on being in a lot of denial about how awful colonialism is. Um, and I think, of course, colonialism is awful is dramatized by Jelly and Wallabog in 1919. Um, and Jelly and Wallabog, of course, many of us know is is often really taken to be that moment that crystallizes um, a much more dramatic response from the Indian National Congress and from Gandhi's leadership in particular, right? Um, the other thing I'll just say is I, I write about the Rollet Act. And of course, I, I think probably every student of South Asian history uh, is quizzed on the Rollet Act and what it said. When I, when I read it closely, I was very, very surprised at um, at how much of that legislation or how much the spirit of that legislation appears in other places, right? And um, and I think because I had started by looking at that Hidgley riot, of course the Rollet Act is an inspiration for all of the legislation that appears in the 20s and 30s, right? And so uh, I think it was important for me to start with the Rollet Act and the King's Proclamation, which are relatively boring texts that I think most people don't read, but of course they they do have a a kind of influence um, that was surprising. I think is the the word I would use. Um, so that so it's you know that I think choosing those those two texts and the reforms allows me to set up what comes later, right? Um, and of course, in the moment, in the 20s, I don't think that either British officials or um, Indian political actors believe this was where they were headed. Thank you. Um, so in chapter two, uh, you turn your attention to the texts, um, autobiographies and memoirs produced by revolutionaries in the 1920s. Um, so what did these revolutionary figures write about in their texts and writings? And what was their motivation to write for a larger reading audience? Oh, I love those uh, texts, autobiographies and memoirs. I mean, I think what's um, uh, probably, I know you were at the University of Wisconsin um, I'm at Cornell. Um, one of the things that I think is very interesting is the texts and autobiographies, memoirs produced by revolutionaries in the 1920s were published uh, many ways, many times, in many forms. Um, uh, they were meant to be read widely. They were meant to be, um, I think, to some degree, inspirational to the youth of the 1920s. Um, Many of the people that I write about uh, in the book, of course, survive into the 1940s and 50s. And I think they have a feeling that the younger generation is not nearly as radical as they were. So I think that those texts have an ambition, right, to radicalize, which I think is really important. I think the other thing I would say about those texts, um, which which I found very interesting in reading them is that um, they're navigating a very difficult line, which is that they don't want to be detained or go back to jail again. And so they have to write about prison life as a set of um, encounters with the state in which they are not subdued, right? In which their mission is not somehow tamped down. 
And so I think that there's a kind of artful way in which they write about these prison experiences as a way of trying to both recruit, but also as a way of, of showing that their ambitions have not died, right? That they might've been jailed in the Andamans, but that their ambition for a different vision of, of India has not changed. Um, I think, uh, their frequent publication, their translation, the you know the fact that they're printed in English, many of them, and the fact that they become texts that we all have in our libraries in the United States is a sign of how effective writing these memoirs was as a form of telling the history of this movement. What I found very compelling about um, these memoirs, and I say this in the context of having written a book in which I studied subjects who never wrote about themselves, what's striking about these figures is that they know they are historical and they know they're historically important and they're very committed to documenting their experience for the future, right? So they know that a revolution will come. They're very confident the British are going to leave India and they're very, it's very clear that their story is going to be important to explaining that. And I find that confidence just fascinating, right? Like, um, you know, I think, uh, you know, one of the, you know, in, in that chapter, one of the figures, of course, um, struggles and, and has a breakdown. And, um, again, I think it's a very, it's a very powerful account of what being in detention did, um, to some of these figures. But I think that, that as a group, what's very clear about them is that they had a vision uh, of a future that hadn't yet arrived, but they were very clear that they wanted to document what had happened to them so that when that future did arrive, we could, we could see how it evolved. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I, I remember when I was reading the book, um, you sort of mentioned they sort of present uh, themselves, as you mentioned, they present themselves as historical figures and they're sort of presenting an alternative um, history that's sort of an alternative to the colonial a telling of history. Um, so, so I, yeah, I found that very compelling um, um, as well. And of course, um, as I mentioned earlier, I really enjoyed the fact that you included these um, sources um, uh, that were written at different points of time, like these texts and memoirs, in addition to um, the, the archival material from the colonial archive. So um, as you and other scholars have demonstrated, um, the mainstream nonviolent anti-colonial movement um, led by Gandhi had connections with uh, the violent anti-colonial revolutionaries. Um, in chapter three, you discuss the resurgence of violent revolutionary actions in the 1920s uh, after, after the suspension of the Gandhi-led non-cooperation movement. Um, following the Chori Chora incident of 1922. Um, so could you tell us about the revival um, of revolutionary uh, terrorism after this in the 1920s and the laws and actions of the colonial government to um, repress and contain it? Um, and also related to that, um, how was Bengali revolutionary violence connected with similar movements in other parts of colonial India, such as, for example, North India? Oh, great question. Let me start with the final one and say Bengali revolutionary violence is connected with many other parts of the movement. And in fact, that's something that the British are very um, anxious about. So it's a very closely tracked 
uh, kind of set of connections. Um, uh, you know, there was a moment where I decided that tracking the transnational kind of flow of this movement was going to be too much for the book. And so I did kind of, um, close off that avenue of investigation, but I will just say that, um, the, probably some of the key figures like the Chittagong Armory Raid, which we'll talk about in a minute. Um, many of those figures are in Rangoon in the twenties and, um, hide there effectively from the British colonial state. And so the connection with similar movements in other parts of India is very, very important. And of course, um, uh, there's links in North India, but there's also links in Punjab. And I think, um, you know, my friend and colleague Kamal McLean has written, written very well about this. Um, the, the thing that I learned about the, uh, non-cooperation movement and it's in the, it's in thinking about the Bengal Provincial Congress and its relationship to these movements is they basically agree that the movements are going to stay underground uh, in the period of the non-cooperation movement. And so in that period until Chari Chara, these, uh, a lot of these figures are, and the reason we know this is because of, of British intelligence reports a lot of these figures are working within the Bengal Provincial Congress and kind of waiting for the moment where they can activate um, a different kind of action against um, the colonial government and in particular colonial officials. So the revival or what the British call a recrudescence of this revolutionary terrorism um, in some ways, all actions are suspended during the period of the non-cooperation movement. But because of the Rollet, because of the spirit of the legislation of the Rollet Acts in Bengal, um, many of the features of the Rollet Act are repurposed in this moment to bring out a number of laws, the Bengal Criminal Law Amendment Acts and so on. And there's a number of them in this chapter that I talk about. I think what's really important um, about this moment, which I, I don't think I had fully understood, is that um, the colonial government is very, very anxious about the revival of the movement. And so it passes or it has these laws on deck to pass them and they pass them as, a, as what they consider a preventive measure. Right. Um but of course, the prevent the quote unquote preventive measure, which is what the Rollet Act was meant to be, is hugely unpopular. And it also, of course, exposes the hypocrisy that this is a government that is going to slowly extend um, more rights and self-governance to uh, to those in Bengal. So I think um, what's important in this particular moment is that to me, it's not clear that anybody wants to embrace um, revolutionary violence, but I think it's also, uh, I think in the aftermath of Jelly and Wallabog and now in cooperation, it's very clear that the colonial government um, is keeping these people under surveillance, which I think a lot of people feel are unfair. And so I think that first uh, round of actions in the early 1920s is in part a certain 
the sign of a certain kind of impatience, right? And of course, it provokes these uh, detention laws, another round of detention laws, and people are rounded up and kept in jail, including Shabash Chandra both. Um, and so I think in a strange way, there's a, there's an odd dance going around in this, in this moment, one in which, um, the Bengali revolutionary terrorists are preparing for something and the colonial government is preparing to, to suppress them and detain them, right? Which it does. Um, I think what's important about this chapter is of course, there's this moment in the mid 1920s when all of this legislation is about to expire or in the late later part of the 1920s when this legislation expired, there's a lot of voices saying this legislation just doesn't make us look very good, right? And we need to let it lapse. We need to let it go. Um, and of course, I think uh, quite rightly, many revolutionary activists are are impatient. Like it's time, you know, it's time to have independence or uh, or it's time for the British to leave. But of course, as we know, that doesn't happen. So. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Thank you. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm very happy um, that scholars like you, as well as, as you mentioned, Kama McLean um, and then Michael Silvestri and others have sort of brought attention to revolutionary violence um, from different um, uh, approaches. Um, so, so, so thank you for um, sharing that. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, I think um, I think it's important um, that we sort of not forget the role of uh, revolutionary violence um, in Indian anti-colonialism. Um, so in chapter four, you discuss revolutionary violence in the 1930s, uh, beginning with the Chittagong Armory Raid of 1930 and the emergency legislation that was introduced at this time, simultaneous with uh, constitutional reforms uh, leading up to the Government of India Act of 1935. Could you share with us um, about this phase of revolutionary terrorism in Bengal and the colonial government's responses? Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, I think one of the things I'll say is, of course, the the actors that are really important are some of the actors that we know, right? Figures like Gandhi, um, Shubhash Chandra Bose, um, uh, Nehru to some degree. I think what's important um, in that chapter, of course, is that um, the Chittagong Armory Raid triggers a whole revival of emergency legislation. And some of it is similar to the emergency legislation of the 1920s, and some of it um, is new, and it's targeted toward particular districts in Bengal. Um, I think the important thing about this legislation in the 30s is, of course, it's not wartime legislation, right? So the Defense of India Act in 1915 and the Defense of India Act 1939, those are um, legitimized or rationalized because it's war and you need extraordinary, um, what's the word, political consensus, I guess. So you force it through this emergency legislation. Um, I think what's, what's important about this phase is that uh, 
leaders in Bengal are saying um, this cycle is not sustainable. This cycle of emergency legislation or revolutionary activity is not sustainable. And as soon as the British leave India, you'll see that this revolutionary violence is going to go away. And so I think in the 30s, um, and, and I will just say, I think that one of the things that's very clear from the documents, um, both from British officials, but also from, from Indian leaders, is that, that they really do imagine that the Government of India Act is going to transition to independence, and that if not for the Second World War, that independence might have happened earlier. That certainly, um, uh, and again, there's another, you know, amnesty in 1937, of in the summer of 1937, releasing the many thousands of detainees. Um, and I write about that in the next chapter. Um, at that point, that there's clearly a sense that India's not maybe independence, but autonomy is is something that is on offer. I think the 30s in terms of the Chittagong Armory Raid um, and, and several actions, which I write about in this chapter, is a very difficult decade in the sense that the attacks are much more personal. And of course, in the 30s, that is when you see women getting involved in larger numbers, and in particular, um, the killing of several magistrates in Eastern Bengal. Um, you know, I think three district magistrates in Mindapur are shot at or killed. Um, there's uh, Shanti and Shuniti in, in, um, uh, and, George, and Charles Stevens. Um, so their, their attacks are also, I would say, more intimate, right? And in that um, they're happening happening at race courses. They're happening at the cricket pitch. Um, Bina Das's uh, shooting at the governor of Bengal, Stanley Jackson, of course, is another example. And so, I think that the 30s is also a moment of of real urgency and real impatience, and the actions become um, uh, really do target the British in places where they feel comfortable. Right. Um, and so I, 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 but I think, you know, the other thing, thing I'll say is the British documents are very clear that they don't want to be perceived as having been pushed to make these reforms by the revolutionary actions. And so, but they are very, very much frightened, terrorized. That's the whole point, right? They are frightened of what's going to happen next. And so, um, I think that I would say the 30s is is probably the most violent decade in my mind. Um, and I think that, I, I think I, I would say that in my reading of the 20th century historiography, I was really surprised that we didn't think more with how violent that moment was. But I think it also explains a lot in the sense that that's the violence that has to be sanitized when India does become independent, right? Because it's very, very hard to explain um, how freedom fighters, you know, smuggled a gun into their academic robes and shot at somebody, right? Like, I think it's very, very hard to explain. And I think it's something, of course, Gandhi writes about in Hinswaraj, but um, I think it's very, very, 
it's a very hard moment to, to narrate um, because in, in part, I do think the violence of this decade, um, I, I found, you know, I found it very hard to read about. I found it very hard to write about, um, but it definitely escalates right in between the Chittagong Armory raid and, and, you know, the end of 1932, I would say. Thank you. Uh, I think in this chapter, as you were mentioning, um, it's uh, this chapter sort of underscores the role of violence um, in Indian anti-colonial um, nationalism. Because as you mentioned, um, in the historiography, there is this focus on um, Gandhian-led non-violence. And of course, that played a very important role um, in India achieving its independence with this history sort of um, as you mentioned, like sanitized and whitewashed. And of course, like um, there, there were so many assassination attempts, as you mentioned. Um, so th- th- we sort of need to sort of bring back into focus um, this history. So um, in chapter five, uh, you turn your attention to the expansion of the system of detention camps in the 1930s uh, and the condition of revolutionaries were detained or imprisoned. Um, And you also write in this chapter about the figure of the political prisoner um, who became a rallying point uh, within the nationalist movement. Um, Something else you write, uh, something else that you also write about in this chapter is how um, a large proportion of political detainees um, in colonial India at that time were Bengali. So, for instance, um, in the Andaman Islands, when 90 percent of the prisoners were from uh, Bengal. So could you tell us more about this politics of detention and the status of political prisoners um, in 1930s colonial India um, and how this chapter figures within the overall arc of your book? Yeah, you know, this, um, it's interesting, this chapter was actually uh, a much longer chapter and half of it, I think I split off into an early chapter, but um the figure of the political prisoner and the and the debates, I think I talk about about how to define who is a political prisoner are very um, it's a very important site for thinking about how their imprisonment was understood. So one of the things that's very interesting is the colonial government is very committed to never admitting that these are political prisoners. And yet they open these particular, um, these detention camps are four, one in Delhi and Rajasthan, one in Baksadwara, another one in Hijli, and then um, uh, the Alipur, uh, and then the Andaman Islands. And so one of the things that um, is fascinating, right, is that the British never want to admit that these are political prisoners or that they've been detained for their political activities, but yet they are detained in jails differently. From, I mean, they're detained in detention camps that are different from jails and prisons. The British also, as we know, love their um, caste and tribe categories, right? And so from very early on, probably from the 1910s onward, um, there is a real confusion about whether criminal tribes legislation can be applied to these political prisoners. And, and of course, that's why the category of Padralok is so important uh, in in the story, which is that repeatedly the British agree that the that Padralok are not criminal tribes, right? Because all Padralok are not criminal tribes. So, um, and of course, you, you they're still sustaining this Macaulayan vision, which you need the Padralok to run your government. And so, I think what's interesting is this category of political prisoner 
is something that the British refuse. It's also a category that these these revolutionary terrorists really want to mark their status. And so there are many, many, many petitions by these detainees about the conditions under which they are kept. And some of the petitions, um, you know, will make you smile because it's about how many books um, they need and, and how long, how big the badminton court has to be and so on. And so a lot of the complaints I think are meant to, to kind of gum up the correspondence and, and cause trouble for jail officials. But I think it's an, it's a distinction in which um, is important in that it's a way of recognizing that they have been jailed for their political uh, activities. Right. And I think that, that for me, that's, um, that's an important moment of tension, right? You, to, to jail people for their political views is something that most democracies say they are not going to do, right? And so it makes sense that nobody wants to call them political prisoners, or the government doesn't want to call them political prisoners. It doesn't quite explain why you set up detention camps that are separate um, to house them in, right? And then there's a very elaborate set of laws about how these detention camps are going to be run, and there's a lot of concern about um, how they are treated in the detention camps. And of course, you know, in the 1930s, there's a rash of uh, suicides and deaths in these detention camps. And they are a huge uh, political and public relations nightmare for the colonial government, right? Because these are not people who have been charged. And I think that that's fairly important, right? Is that if you are a colonial government that has pressed forward that you abide by rule of law, it's very hard to explain why you're keeping several thousand people in these detention camps. Um, uh, detention camps being detention camps, of course, there are many, many, many documents about setting up detention camps. And, you know, uh, and um, the thing I find fascinating is the, the colonial officials who take up the task of building a detention camp. And of course, building a detention camp is a form of colonial occupation. And it's quite striking that several of these detention camps are very far from Bengal, which is, of course, exactly the point, which is that this is how you keep these detainees from communicating with their um, with their communities. Right. Um, this was probably the chapter in which I really had to not go down the rabbit hole of the scholarship on Guantanamo, right? But if you follow any of the scholarship on Guantanamo, or or perhaps more precisely, I would say, what happens to the Guantanamo detainees when they're released? It's very clear that we still operate under the logic that these detainees um, are jailed, but they can't be tried in a normal court of law. And when they are released, they can't go back to their home communities, right? That many of them are sent to other countries who will accept them, right? Because they're still seen to be some kind of public threat. And I think that there's a way that um, the detention camp has, has become part of a regime that uh, brackets yet brackets the problem, right? It just, the detention camp evades the problem of being lawful. You just put people in detention camps and you say, well, they're not political prisoners, but they're also not 
you know, they don't have rights under the law. And I think that's a, that's a kind of, you know, it's an interesting move in the 1930s. Um, uh, the other thing about the 1930s, of course, is that the Andamans are closed and then they're reopened. Right. And I think that, uh, it's very clear that Bengal is perceived to be this ungovernable, um, space after Chittagong because, you know, as, as I think everyone knows about Chittagong, many of the people who participated evaded arrest and trial for several years after the event. And so I think removing um, these political detainees to the Andaman Islands is a way to isolate them, right, and keep them from being um, and I think I use the language of containing them, right? Keeping them from being influential in the political, in the liberal political processes that the government is trying to roll out in the 1930s. Thank you. Um, listening to you, I was also thinking about uh, the post-colonial history of uh, detention camps or sort of political detention um, in India. So, I mean, um, uh, I, I, th- I think uh, they, they, there might be other scholars who can build on uh, what you write in this chapter um, to sort of frame uh, the, po- the post-colonial history of uh, political detention. Um, so you note in chapter six, um, a surge in the publications of memoirs and autobiographies in the late 1940s um, and beyond by Bengali revolutionaries, just as there had been an upsurge of such publications a few decades um, earlier in the 1920s. Um, however, you note some key distinctions in these memoirs and autobiographies from those published um, in earlier years. Um, so could you tell us more about the figures who authored these revolutionary autobiographies and what struck you as particularly noteworthy about the writings published at this historical juncture um, of the late 1940s and 1950s? Yeah, I mean, I have to say I love these um biography these autobiographies and memoirs uh and and i really um i mean i read them many times there were many more that i read than were than i wrote about in the in the book i think what's very interesting is that when when the british do finally leave india in 1947 when um India becomes independent. Of course, the big tragedy is in Bengal is partition. And uh, what's very interesting, and this is what I thought would be the next project, and I'll tell you a little bit about that in a minute, but what's very interesting is that a lot of the um, revolutionary terrorists are actually from East Bengal. And so the irony is that the territorial homeland that the homeland that they have been fighting for has been reconfigured into a new territory. And so many of them do actually move to West Bengal and to Calcutta. And, uh, and in Calcutta, of course, if, you, if you've read the work of, of Joya Chatterjee um, in particular, you know that there's a big debate about what the contours of this new province is going to look like. And... I think what's notable about the, these revolutionary autobiographies in the 1940s and 50s is that they're trying to, um, that now they know India's independent, but now they're trying to document a history uh, kind of as it's being written, right? So if the, if the autobiographies of the 1920s are anticipating 
Indian independence. They have a certain they have a certainty to them, which they can have because independence hasn't arrived. Uh, with these autobiographies, independence is about to arrive, and it doesn't look like what they had imagined. And so I think that they're doing two things. One is I think they're recording a certain kind of lamentation. I think another is that they are also trying to tell a history in the hopes that um, their vision will take precedence, right? Because I think if you remember many of the, I mean, in Bengal, at least between 1947 and well into the 50s, there's actually quite a lot of traffic back and forth between East and West Bengal and a lot of um, close family ties, close social ties. And so when I learned, for instance, that Bina Das was arrested several more times in the 60s for her activism for East Bengali refugees, um, it made very clear that, that when they write in the 40s and 50s, they're writing from a place of loss, but they're also writing from a place of hope in the sense that I think they imagine that Bengal can be reunited in some form, right? Or that their allegiances are still very much with the people in, in the Eastern part of Bengal. So I think I don't, I, I didn't talk so much about partition in the chapter again, because I think partition has such a um, huge and complicated historiography, but I do think uh, it's important to mark that a lot of the people who are um, being extolled as having really sacrificed and suffered for independence. They've all, and a lot of them are jailed in, under Quit India, so they're released in the 1940s, um, that, that actually they have made a much bigger sacrifice than anyone imagined, which is that they've given up their territorial homeland, maybe not the idea of their homeland. Yeah, I hope that answers. I mean, I think that's one particularly noteworthy feature of the the, the late fifties and uh, the late nineteen forties and fifties. Thank you. Uh, that's really thought provoking about how um, when independence comes, um, it's sort of not in the form um, that these revolutionaries, who many of whom were from East Bengal, uh, would have been expecting. Um, and it's something else um, that intrigued me about this chapter, um, and it's something that you mentioned earlier too, was about the role played by women revolutionaries. And oftentimes when you think of violent revolutionaries, we're thinking about men. Um, so you discuss um, the writings and memoirs of s some of these women revolutionaries, like um, you mentioned earlier, like Bina Das, uh, Kalpana Datta, um, and Kamla Das Gupta. Um, so for those of our audience who are unfamiliar uh, with women's participation um, in the anti-colonial revolutionary movement in Bengal, could you tell us more about them? Yeah, you know, I had intended to write uh, quite a bit more about women revolutionaries, in part because they're such an important feature of the movement, particularly from the 1930s onward. Um, uh, I wrote an article that came out in Gender and History in 2012, which I think addresses some of their activities. But one of the things that's very interesting about the women revolutionaries, again, they're all college educated. Um, so they are, uh, you know, very ambitious. They're very motivated. They're very focused. Um, Bina Das, as probably many of you know, was involved in an attempted murder of the governor of Bengal. Uh, Kalpana Datta was um, 
kind of involved in the Chittagong Army Raid. She didn't herself participate in the Chittagong Army Raid, but she became um, involved in uh, protecting the fugitives in the aftermath. And of course, Kamala Dasgupta is um, is their ally and their colleague, and she's she's credited with having um, run a hostel that was a kind of safe house for revolutionary terrorists. There are many more um, of these revolutionary women that I could I could talk about. Um, I, I chose the three that I did in chapter six because they lived well past independence in 1947, and they all wrote in different ways about their participation in the movement. And the two very famous ones, of course, Rabina Das and, and Kalpana Datta, but the, the one who I think is the unsung hero is Kamala Dasgupta, who wrote a book in Bengali about women's participation in the movement. And, and she is very deeply invested in documenting the history of the movement in, in the period uh, after independence. All three of them live until well into the 20th century. So uh, I chose them in part because I could track and follow them through newspapers and, and follow their activities in other ways. But Kamala Dasgupta becomes very involved in writing a dictionary of nationalist activists and leaders that is based at the that is kind of um, supported by the Calcutta Historical Society, and she uh, it's a wonderful you know set of I would say three hundred word essays about people about those who were involved in the movement, and then she includes all of the people involved in the underground movements, and I think she becomes a kind of advocate of writing the history of this, uh, of women's involvement, which I think is really important. Um, I, I think what's really interesting, uh, and again, you know, I'm really obsessed with respectability. Um, I think what's really interesting about all of the women is this tension between, um, how much they strained what was expected of women, right? Uh, and how much they present themselves as servants of the nation, right? So they they rationalize a lot as being in the service of the nation, but their activities um, require them in the revolutionary movement to do things that we don't imagine women of this era doing, right? So they train in martial arts, they learn how to swim, they learn how to ride a bicycle, um, Bina Das, of course, learns how to handle arms, as does Kamala Dasgupta. So they're really extraordinary women. And what I find quite striking in comparison to the, to the memoirs written by the men, they always have to present themselves as not as extraordinary as they are. And they they have to present themselves as being very respectable. And so I think that um, it's a fascinating way in which the activities of these women really confronts the limits of how we write about women, um, and in particular, how we write about revolutionary women. And so um, I I really loved this chapter. I really loved writing about all three of them. I'll just say, um, I've mentioned the Calcutta Historical Society, these audio uh, oral histories. Um, there's 90 hours of them. And uh, uh, Bina Das is one of the people that that's um, interviewed. And I remember that moment where I heard her, her voice, right. And these are, these are, uh, interviews I think recorded in the seventies. I heard her voice and, and the interviewer says, you know, did you know what you were doing was really revolutionary for a woman? And she, she says in Bengali, you know, 
well, of course, you know, well, the boys were all doing it. Why shouldn't I? Right. And so I think of these women as really extraordinary. Right. Um, and seeing uh, a way forward to live lives that are, I think, that were, I think, a bit different from maybe what their families had imagined, right? Um, but always really having to tell the story in a way where we weren't suspicious about them, right? Um, I'll just say one more thing, which is, um, you know, there's a woman I don't write about in this chapter very much, Preeti Lata Badadar, who dies very young uh, in a raid in Chittagong. And um, she's found wearing men's clothes, and I find that very fascinating, right? And so that's another kind of, um, you know, it's an interesting way in which it, it leads me to think about the kinds of lives they were able to live being part of this underground revolutionary movement that that uh, they wouldn't have been able to live otherwise, right? So, you know, I, I, uh, I think they're just a fascinating... Um, maybe I'll just say one more thing about them, which is they, they, they all know each other, right? Because they're also all incarcerated together. And so they pose a big problem to the British in terms of their incarceration and detention, because there aren't enough, there are no jails, in fact, for women. And it's very clear that because these are educated women, that they can't be placed into the regular jail population. And so, um, uh, so that's, that's, again, a way in which their status as educated and respectable plays in a particular way. And so um, what's also very interesting is they all write about each other, which I thought was very powerful. Thank you. Um, that, that's really fascinating. Um, and I, I mean, as I mentioned, that um, oftentimes when people think of revolutionaries, they don't think about these women. So in a way, they sort of uh, become unsung heroes. So I'm, I'm very happy that you were able to recover um, the oral histories and sort of the, their memoirs um, and the sources about them and sort of include them um, in your narrative. Um, so so that, that's that's really um, interesting and, um, you know, compelling. Um so finally, um, I would like to ask you about the ways in which post-colonial India has been influenced by the shadow of revolutionary violence um, and the colonial state's repression of terrorism um, in the late colonial period. This is something um, you sort of you mentioned in both the introduction, um, but also in, in the conclusion. Um, so could I ask you to read the last paragraph of the conclusion of the book on, on page 256 um, and explain to us um, what you mean? Sure, sure. So let me read it and then I'll talk about it. So the passage reads, this trajectory toward more emergency laws rather than less shows the ways in which colonial occupation produced particular outcomes. India's colonial history of revolutionary terrorism is very much a part of its present, a legacy of colonial occupation and liberal ideals as they developed in concert through the 20th century. So, you know, when the book came out in 2017, um, I am not sure I could have imagined the um, dramatic increase uh, in the detention, in particular, student activists. Um, I think what's been uh, sad, but also quite striking, is the revival of colonial emergency laws in the post-colonial period. Um, And of course, the Sections in the Indian Penal Code about sedition are an example of that. Um, So the book came out in 2017. Uh, I think we've seen 
just a massive increase in detentions of political dissidents, which uh, suggests that this legacy is not behind us. Um, I think uh, one of the things I'll just say about that chapter is, uh, and I had really, I had intended for this to be the next project. And, and I think it, it may or may not be, but, but there's a lot of good work being done by, by lawyers and legal historians about this. But in the final chapter, um, I was quite struck when I looked up the legislation on the West Bengal Security Act, which was uh, seen as a temporary measure basically to hold West Bengal together. It's seen as temporary, but it's reenacted basically every year from 1948 through the 19, I think through 1964 before it's replaced by something else. And of course, it's very much like the um, the text of it is very Parts of it are similar to the Bengal Criminal Law Amendment Act, which I write about, uh, the 25 Act, and then the Suppression of Terrorist Outrages Act. Um, so I think what's quite striking to me is that the language of this legislation um, is, seen to, is seen to be useful to the government, right? And it's revived in various ways in that very early colonial period. Um, the other thing I would say is something opposite to what happens in the British period. In the British period, the Rawlett Act is never put into place, but then various provincial uh, legislation is used to identify the particular challenges, say in UP or in Northwest Frontier Province or um, Bengal and so on. And that logic uh, of targeting it to provinces is, of course, mobilized, um, most notably in Kashmir right, with the Armed Forces Special Protection Act. The Armed Forces Special Protection Act draws much of its language from acts that are used in the 1930s in Chittagong in particular, right? So um, I think it's important to think about how that legislation is being mobilized and also how the logic the colonial logic, which is we're protecting democracy or we're protecting this emergent democracy by containing the dissidents, how that logic is repurposed and being recycled right now, right? And the colonial part of it that's still very much alive is that somehow dissidents are poorly trained in democracy and they don't know what they're saying. They don't know what they're doing. But if we put them in detention camps and you know, give them an opportunity to reform, they will join uh, this democratic purpose when in fact the democratic purpose is being undermined by the people who say they promote it. Right. Uh, I think is, is really troubling um, to say the least. Um, I think that, uh, you know, I think it should be obvious. I've been working on this book for a long time. Right. Um, if you think I, I read the, the bit about the Hidgley riot in 1931, I mean, the Hidgley Riot in 1931, I read about the summer of 2000, and now we're starting, you know, 2022. I think um, when I started this, uh, and remember, you know, I, I also, like many of us, lived through 9-11. I don't think I had imagined that um, laws, which I had a great tr- deal of trust in, that laws would be ineffective or and also that they could be perverted in this way, right? And I think that, um, I think in India, especially what's happened in the last few years, 
is a sign uh, that colonial laws are still very much alive, right? Um, but I just say one last thing. I mean, this passage is about emergency laws. I would also just draw attention to Section three seventy seven, right? The the law on sodomy and the debates around that, right? And so, I think in a number of realms, the post colonial Indian government um, really has to come to terms with the shadow of some of these colonial legal. Um, practices, norms and practices. Thank you. Uh, as you mentioned, um, uh, your, uh, the, the legacy of revolutionary terrorism and also the legacy of uh, the response to revolutionary terrorism in the form of these emergency laws, but also more generally, um, the colonial legal code sort of ha- leaves its imprint today and uh, it just underscores um, the relevance um, of your book. Um, so, so thank you so much um, again, Durba, for taking so much time out, out of your busy schedule to talk with me today. Um, so before we end, may I ask you what you are working on right now? Oh, gosh, yes. Uh, you know, it's interesting. It's a, it's, it builds from this project, um, and in particular, uh, what I write about in the final chapter um, about the... Um, ways that the history of the revolutionary movement had to be told in post-colonial India. And so um, I, I am studying the installation of statues in post-colonial India that are um, commemorations of these figures. And so two of the statues that I've worked on are the statue of Kudiram Bose, which is outside the high court in Calcutta. And then there's another statue by Shurdra Sen, um, and what's interesting to me, Kudiram Bose is, of course, uh, a very important figure who was executed in 1908. Shudra Sen is considered the ringleader of the Chittagong Armory Raid. Um, and both of them have these very large uh, 10 to 12 foot statues of them uh, in the center of Calcutta. And so I'm very interested in the process by which those statues were installed and, of course, course, as I've done the research, I've learned that there were other statues there and they were British colonial statues. And so I'm very interested in what happens to those British colonial statues. So unlike lots of places in the world, in South Asia, there wasn't a massive toppling of statues. There were some, but not at independence. But there, what there has been is, um, I would say, a much more um, gradual moving of statues away from the centers of cities to parks and Coronation Park might in Delhi might be an example of that. Um, and then they've been replaced by other statues. And uh, Chris Moffat in his recent book talks about a statue of Bhagat Singh that's, um, that's installed near the parliament in, in New Delhi. So I'm, uh, I'm very interested in the project. I'm desperate, like everybody else, to go back to South Asia to do archival research. And so uh, during the pandemic, I've been mainly focusing on colonial statues in South Asia. And um, these are statues put up by the British colonial government in various places. And the goal, I think, is to kind of figure out what statues were put in place in the period roughly from, you know, 1850 to 1950. And then what happens to some of those spaces after 1950? So I would say the first part of the project, which I've, I've uh, drafted mainly using digital resources, is in pretty good shape. Um, 
I think the question for me, probably like for a lot of uh, historical archive-based researchers is when I'll get back to India so that I can write what I think will be the second half of the book, um, which will be about the installation of statues in India. And maybe I'll just focus, I told you about Kudiram and Shurja Sen. Uh, What's very interesting, of course, is that both of them are from East Bengal, and yet these statues are in the West. There are also statues in East Bengal put up uh, in Bangladesh, put up after 1971, that mark various of these figures that I've written about in the book, which I also think is sort of interesting. And I want to, I want to think a little bit about what it's like to embrace the freedom fighters of a different nationalist battle, right? Um, so that's the new. Those are some thoughts about the next project. Thank you. Um, that sounds very uh, compelling, and it sort of comes full circle um, to your book because as I'm looking at the uh, the the uh, front page of your book, it has an illustration of Khudiram Bose um, and his um, hanging. Um, uh, so uh, I, I hope you get a chance to come to India and do your research um, soon. Um, so, so thank you. Uh, this was an interview uh, with Professor Durba Ghosh about her book, uh, Gentlemanly Terrorists, Political Violence and the Colonial State in India, uh, 1919 to 1947. Um, so I ho- hope you have a good day. Thank you. Thank you.